Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And also by Liquidware, creators of FlexApp, the most feature-rich application learning product on the market. And of course, also by Policy Pack Software, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, mitigate ransomware, plus more. If you enjoy the show each week, you have them to thank. And now for some news. The Apple Worldwide Developers Conference was held this week. If you listen to the podcast regularly, you'll have heard me talk about a potential switch by Apple from Intel processors to their own ARM processor. In fact, I talked about it just last week too. Well, the rumor the switch would be formally announced at WWDC this week was true. They announced it as Apple Silicone. It has been reported that there is a two-year transition plan and they intend to carry on supporting those who are on Macs with the current chips into the future too, so don't panic. Obviously a critical aspect of this change and its success will be the apps. And they also announced that Apple developer program members can start moving their apps to Apple Silicon today by applying for the Universal App Quick Start program. The program provides access to documentation, form support, beta versions of macOS Big Sur and Xcode 12, and includes the limited use of a DTK, which will enable developers to build and test their Universal 2 apps. According to ZDNet, the DDK, which must be returned to Apple at the end of the program, consists of a Mac Mini with Apple's A12Z Bionic SOC inside and desktop specs are including 16 gig of memory, 512 gig SSD, and a variety of Mac I.O. ports. Developers can apply to the program at developer.apple.com and the total cost of the program is $500. So that's a pretty reasonable asking price in my opinion, although I'm not a developer and I don't know how much other vendors charge for similar dev programs. As pointed out by some online during the announcements, this move will mean that boot camp for dual booting Windows on a Mac is looking like it will be a thing of the past once this rolls out. And if Apple Watch is your thing, it sounds like there's going to be a new nag feature to nag people about washing their hands, which is pretty timely. And as is usually the way, there was a lot of mockery online through memes showing the iOS updates looking very much like Android and even Windows phone user interfaces of the past. But it'll be interesting to see where things go from here. Obviously, I reported several months ago on the rumors that this was coming and the possibility that they will make macOS and iOS more closely aligned. And moving to their own ARM processor certainly should bridge that gap and give them a stepping stone to a universal platform and operating system. The June Windows patches have been causing crashes and reboots due to a failure in the local security authority subsystem service. 
also known as LSAS or LSAS.exe. According to ZDNet, Microsoft noted that the June 16 out of band update, which fixed printers that had stopped working after installing the Patch Tuesday updates, is affected by the LSAS failure. Microsoft says it is working on a fix that will be delivered in a future update. It has not confirmed whether the LSAS issue affects earlier versions of Windows 10. So if you notice some phantom reboots happening while you're away from your PC, it could very well be linked to this. I noticed a story about a very interesting lawsuit that just came to light. ITBrief.com.au has reported that F5 are now being sued by a firm called Linwood on behalf of another company called Rambler. As you may know, particularly if you listen to the podcast, F5 acquired Inginix. Well, Igor Sisov, the creator of Inginix, worked for Rambler but left in 2011 to create Inginix. He claims he began developing it outside of his day job in his free time. Sisov may have allowed Rambler to run its own systems on top of Nginx and used this experience to help in his development of the software. Linwood claims that he developed the program to address challenges that Rambler was seeing and that in its terms of employment, any software developed by any employee automatically belongs to the company, which is pretty much a boilerplate cookie cutter policy that most large organizations have. So that's very believable. They also have claimed that F5 knew this when they acquired Nginx. So it'll be interesting to see where things go from here. F5 may very well end up owing this Rambler company quite a bit of money. If I see more updates in the story as it develops, I'll be sure to share. This week, Okta, CrowdStrike, Netscope, and Proofpoint announced a partnership and that they plan to enable security and IT professionals with the knowledge and integrated product solutions they need to manage security for distributed work environments, which are quickly becoming a permanent fixture due to the pandemic. Together, they hope their technologies, which represent what they claim is for the best of breed solutions, to form a modern comprehensive security architecture. But in short, since there's been such a drive for remote work and enabling employees to work from home, these four companies, who are not necessarily, I guess, the largest players in their spaces, are teaming up and putting together a pretty impressive and hopefully effective modern zero-trust approach for customers. It'll be interesting to see what they come up with and if it will be compelling enough to maybe convince some of those companies who are using the more established players in the market to give them a look. This week, Microsoft announced that it's acquiring CyberX, which is a security startup that focuses on detecting, stopping, and predicting security breaches on Internet of Things networks and the networks of large industrial organizations. TechCrunch.com reports the terms of the deal are not being disclosed, but sources say that it's in the region of $165 million. The deal also illustrates how bigger tech companies are using the economic slowdown to focus on their long-term strategies and shore up assets to support those strategies. And that was not the only acquisition Microsoft announced this week. They have also acquired 
ADRM Software. ADRM Software is a provider of large-scale industry data models which are used by large companies as information blueprints. It's claimed that combining comprehensive industry models from ADRM with limitless storage and compute from Azure will allow for the creation of the intelligent data lake where data from multiple lines of businesses can be harmonized together more quickly. I guess it'll be interesting to see if it really is conditions for the likes of Microsoft to acquire more companies. Who else they might acquire in this time? Sticking with Microsoft for this next one, and not really enterprise IT related, but Microsoft just announced that they would be permanently closing all of their retail stores across the United States. Microsoft said that closing of its physical locations will result in a pre-tax charge of approximately $450 million or 0.05 cents per share, which it will record in the current quarter that ends June 30th. They plan to focus on digital platforms for retail sales and will also reimagine spaces that serve all customers, including operating Microsoft Experience Centers in London, New York City, Sydney, and on their Redmond campus. Shout out to Christoph Kolbix this week for sharing on Twitter the fact that the 90-day trial licenses are no longer available for Citrix products on their website. Now you're appointed to fill in a form if you're interested to get a demo. It's kind of a bummer. It would be nice to see them set up a solid structure for hobbyists and home labbers to work with Citrix products in their spare time. Really, it benefits them, so I don't see why they wouldn't do that. Citrix Hypervisor version 8.2 has been released, and if you're not familiar with what Citrix Hypervisor is, it's the ridiculous new name given to Zen Server. This release will support a maximum host RAM of 6 terabytes, and also maximum number of logical processors per host moves up to 448 CPUs. There's a read caching feature that improves performance on NFS, EXT, or SIF SMB SRs that host multiple VMs cloned from the same source. This feature can now be enabled and disabled for each individual SR from the Zen Center console. They state that you may want to disable read caching in the following cases. One, if you have no file-based SRs. Two, if you do not have any cloned VMs. And three, if you have insufficient memory available to allocate to DOM0 to derive any performance benefits. Also added with this release is support for SUSE Linux Server 12 SP5, Ubuntu version 20.04, and they've also removed support for Windows 7, Windows Server 2008, and Windows Server 2008 SP1. Citrix Hypervisor now will also enable easy installation of server TLS certificates, and it's enforcing the use of TLS 1.2 protocol for any HTTPS traffic between the Citrix Hypervisor and an external network. They've also changed the old guest-tools.iso file, and it's now split out into two separate files instead. There's now a Citrix VM tools for Windows and a Citrix VM tools for Linux. 
They state that providing the tools as separate components removes the needs for hotfixes to apply updates to a tool's ISO stored on the Citrix hypervisor server. So I guess that's why they made that change. And now this episode, scripts, tricks, and tips. Morpheus78 on Twitter shared an update to his excellent BG Info PowerShell script. I actually featured this on a previous episode of the podcast, so just wanted to give a quick shout out that there's an update out there. It provides some very useful information, particularly in your Citrix environments, on things like if you're using FS Logics and profile size and that sort of thing. It said with this new version, it can also display the MTU size, WEM agent version, the VDA agent version, and you also now have the ability to execute the script via WEM external task or group policy object. Next up, if you missed the excellent E2EVC digital event that I talked about in the last couple of episodes of the podcast, you now have an opportunity to watch it back via the PubForm YouTube channel. And I'll share a link to that with this episode, which is episode 130 on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links. And finally, Christian Brinkoff hosted a webinar on MSIX AppAttach titled The Future of App Delivery in Windows Virtual Desktop. It's only about 28 minutes long and it's already up on his personal YouTube channel. So if you're interested in MSIX AppAttach, which I think I've talked about now on the last four episodes of the podcast, and I've been playing around with it for several weeks myself now, this is a really useful way to get up to speed and maybe pique your own interest and possibly get you involved into doing some of the testing. Well, that's it for another episode of the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening.